I want you to imagine three different things. First, imagine one of the extremely advanced battery parks that are popping up across the world. Then imagine the scenery of a beautiful Norwegian mountainside, sliced vertically by a stream of water dropping into the depths below you. And then finally, imagine your last cup of tea or coffee. It was probably somewhere between 50 and 100 degrees centigrade warm. You got those three images in your mind? Good. Because today, you'll learn how batteries appear to be flushed out of northern Europe by exactly that kind of hot and cold water. This and much more we'll discuss in today's episode. I'm Daniel Sneum, and this is Energy Policy Cast. Last episode, we had the pleasure of Professor Peter Lund's summary of the tentative findings and recommendations from the FlexFresh project up until now. In today's episode, Klaus Skutter from DTU Management, who's also the leader of the FlexFresh project, will share his thoughts on the findings and recommendations to be taken from the results that are in the pipeline of FlexFresh. So in summary, Peter gave you FlexFresh up until now, while Klaus will give you a teaser of what's indicated by the results on flexible energy systems just around the corner. First of all, thank you for inviting me here. I have more than uh, 20 years of uh, experience within the energy research field. I uh, started in '96, actually. Uh, studying renewable energy and, and marks design, and then have actually continued uh, for, for, for the last 20 years with different tasks. I am an economist as background, but I've worked at the Technical University for so many years, so I'm kind of multidisciplinary right now, so I have different kind of approaches to it. First of all, just a, a few words on, on how you find the need for flexibility or why there is a need for flexibility and, and what flexibility is characterized by? We are, we are going from an uh, uh, old energy system where it was more centralized, it was more fossil-based uh, system. And then the green transition is, is, is pointing in the way where we are going to a more decentralized system, and it's going to be much more uh, based on renewable energy, especially wind and solar is going to be deployed in, in large scale in the future to come. And this has also some challenges. And one of the challenges is flexibility. Uh, we need the flexibility in order to have the system to, to be able to cope with a generation that vary in, in, uh, from time to time. It, the wind is, is generating when the wind is blowing and the sun is, is generating when the sun is, is shining. So this is the main uh, idea. So from the old system where we, we had a system where we just had the entire uh, generation side just being flexible enough to adjust to a viable demand profile, we're going to have the entire system to be able to cope with a, a system where some of the generation side is not that flexible anymore. One additional question regarding sector coupling is how it relates to integration and flexibility and maybe the incentives that the actors have in, in such systems. So so an integrating system or sector coupled system uh, it's very good for the system, but it's only good if it's actually reacting in a smart way. It has to react flexible and react to the signals from the market of the need of flexibility. 
So if there's a need for additional uh, load, then they should consume when, when they have a, a case for it. <laughs> uh, and, and vice versa, if, if there's a need for them to curtail their, their uh, consumption, they should also do it. And this is normally, again, with the prices. If the prices are low, they should have incentive to actually to consume a little bit more. And if the price is high, they should uh, have an incentive to postpone their consumption. In the policy recommendations that that you are currently drafting, show that that the the Nordics is maybe a special case for uh, for flexibility and and renewable energies and system transition. But what do you think makes the Nordic particular in in that respect? The Nordic is 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 unique in the, the sense that they used to work together. Uh, they have we have a long tradition in working together on the electricity market. Uh, for many, many years, decades, we have been trading together, uh, exchanging uh, electricity. It go way back to where the, the hydropower, in, in especially in Norway, needed uh, the system flexibility from, from thermal power in Denmark and so on. Then there was a win-win situation that we could send electricity to Norway when they have a, a dry year, when they didn't have that much water, and they could send uh, cheap hydropower to us when there was a wet year. So we have the basic, at least in the electricity market, to, uh, to, to work together. And then we have a, a, a common mindset. We know that we can reach higher standing on each other's shoulders than tripping on each other's toes. So, so, so we, we can kind of have this idea that we can trust each other. And this is very um, common from the, from the Nordic countries and very important also. But we also uh, know that we, have, we are different. So, so what we do is that we know we are different, but what we act as one, and this is what makes yeah, the Nordics so unique. So, so we can actually be the one that actually do this transition in a fast way and be the front runners. But is is that message the same as saying that the results that we find in the FlexRest project that they cannot be transferred to other regions in the world or other countries? Or how is the transferability uh, of of our results in FlexRest? When you look at a system approach, you always have to look at what is all the factors behind it. Is technical factors, is social factors, political factors, uh, and we can say that in that sense, the Nordics are, are unique uh, because they they kind of work very well together. However, it is possible to transfer uh, the Nordic model to the other countries, but you have to take into account the, the cultural differences, uh, the uh, present technology mix, etc. So there's not one way to do it, but we can show that it can be done in the Nordics, and then you can adjust uh, everywhere else uh, if you want to use the Nordic model. The target that FlexRes is moving towards is is 2050, the target year. Mm-hmm. But what is the uh, the purpose of exactly that year, and, and why is that chosen for this project? There's a general understanding, or political understanding, and also in the public, that we want to be carbon neutral uh, in 2050. But it doesn't mean that we have to wait all the way to 2050, because actually the energy sector, especially for electricity and heat, they can move forward much faster. And that's what actually we also show in the Flex4S project, that they can do it already in the 20s, already in the 30s, uh, that we can decarbonize these sectors uh, by the end of the 30s, so they can be the one who lead the way for the other sectors. So it's a stepwise approach where different sectors decarbonize in 
in different uh, time periods, I suppose. Exactly. And then maybe sticking to the term decarbonization. Mm. For instance, in the U.S., you have uh, discussions on whether, and U.S. and elsewhere, whether you should have a decarbonized system or a 100% renewable system or maybe even uh, a fossil-free system. And, and there is so similar terms, but with, with different meanings. Can you just maybe go be into detail with the, what does a decarbonized system characterize? <laughs> Um, when we look at the different things, we can also look at, at the different countries, actually. A, a decarbonized system just means that you don't emit any, any CO2 anymore. Uh, a fossil-free system is more that you, you stop using fossil uh, fuels. And then uh, a 100% renewable energy is, is where you based it everything on, on renewable energy. When you look at the Nordics, in some of the countries, like in, in Denmark, you can go... 100% renewables because this is what you, where you have the resources. You have wind, you have a little bit of biomass, and, and, and you have some solar. Whereas you, if you look at, at Finland, you have, still have some nuclear power, but you also have the renewables. So, so they will not go 100% renewable, but they will still be uh, carbon neutral because they will still phase out all the uh, fossil fuel use. That makes sense, and I think this dis- distinction is important just to, to know what we're talking about. Then... What is the the optimization criteria? So we have the target of decarbonization in 2050, but what kind of criteria do we set up to reach those targets? What we want to do is we we want to find some pathway to go to the decarbonized energy system in 2050. It's important that it's a reliable system, it's important that it's uh, sustainable, and then it's important that it's cost-effective. By cost-effective, we kind of looking for where are the low-hanging fruit. So we try to find those uh, flexibility potential, decarbonization potentials that is uh, in large scale and at low cost mm. uh, first, and then we use in the second cheapest option next, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so we actually see can we do this in a cost-effective way which also ensure that we always have the electricity we need. We always have a, a system which is also sustainable in many years forward. And this, this optimization, that happens across sectors and across geographies. So sector coupling and geographical coupling. Can you just briefly explain those terms? Yeah. Traditionally, in the, the energy sectors, we have looked at different sectors uh, separately. So, so what we have done is, is for example, to, to integrate different regions within electricity market with transmission line. This is what we call kind of geographical coupling. It is very effective when you have different technology mix or different load profiles in different regions. Then you will also have different needs that, that you can trade with each other and thereby create a win-win situation. When you do sector coupling, on the other hand, you have different profiles, for example, in, in the heat side and the electricity side, and if you can create a business model, so you can use electricity in the heat sector, or you can co-generate electricity when you generate heat uh, in the right way, then you can help each other and then actually earn money in it, but also uh, find the, the cheapest way to, to become uh, decarbonized. You mentioned earlier, I think, that, that this transition can, it, it cannot wait. So there is this window of opportunity uh, you men- mentioned the 2020s as uh, the, the point where a- action should be taken. Mm. And in our previous episode, Peter Lund as well argued that 
that this is not a development that can wait, that it should be implemented in policy and and action should be taken now. So can you just elaborate why and when should this deployment happen uh, so so quickly? It is important that, that we decarbonize the electricity and heat sector uh, right away, more or less. Uh, it has to be done within the, the 2030s. Uh, so it means that we have to take action now, as you also said. The reason why that is because this is the also the easiest sector to, to, to start with compared to the agriculture sector or some of the industry sectors and transport sectors. So it could lead the way for the other sectors how you decarbonize the society in, in total. So, so what we suggested that we, we do it fast, uh, both in order to, to help the other sectors to be electrified, to be decarbonized, but also for the Nordics to, to be frontrunner and open a window opportunity to export more uh, green technologies, to export flexibility, to export the, the green system approach. This is uh, very variable for the Nordics, and we have uh, a comparative advantage there we can can explore it if we move fast. So it's it's sort of, of uh, working on two different legs. So one is the the transition of the Nordics themselves, and there may be an economic case for doing so, and, and a, a climate target case, and then also the uh, the purpose of having uh, exporting knowledge to the rest of the world that may be applicable in in, in that transition. Yeah. yeah, and also technologies. So so actually, what we what we see is that that if you could put it up as a, a, a three step uh, that you could take you you should decarbonize the uh, um, the energy, energy sector like electricity and heat then in the nordics and then you go european go international uh, in in the 40s and and then uh, also uh, take take into account all the other sectors in 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 the 40s so by 2050 you should have a, a decarbonized society Mm, so, so it sounds like we're gonna get busy in the 40s at least, and and also before. Yeah, yeah. we are. Yeah. <laughs> I think this uh, this uh, recommendation is already also reflected in in other studies. Uh, for instance, I I think the Danish Climate Council has made similar recommendations that waiting it out does not pay and essentially makes everything more expensive when you when you have to rush it through. Um, so we. Uh, you also mentioned a, uh, a stronger collaboration between the Nordics. Yeah. And I, I find this an interesting recommendation. A few years ago, I, I heard the Danish TSO in Aginet uh, playing with the thought of, of having common Nordic socioeconomic cost-benefit analysis. So is is that somewhat of a similar direction that, that you recommend? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we show that... that each of the countries in the Nordics actually have a gain of, of uh, trading, um, but the largest gain is, is, is when, when you actually trade together, that you develop the, the common ideas. For example, when we in our uh, scenarios, we have scenarios where we uh, make texture coupling, but we also make stronger uh, transmission lines, not only between the Nordic countries, but also to the continent. Mm. It means that we can actually export much more uh, electricity, uh, provide more flexibility to the European continent. It's a benefit for, for all the, the Nordic countries actually uh, benefiting from it. So, so there are different kind of, of benefits. And if you look at it as a kind of social uh, economic viewpoint where you look at uh, who is who's benefiting the most, then you can actually optimize on this one as well. 
it certainly opens up this uh, interesting uh, dilemmas also how to maybe distribute that Nordic wealth among the Nordic countries. It's possible to do, and it's not only between the countries, but, but also between uh, different kind of, of uh, sectors and, and, and consumer versus uh, producers. Uh, but but that's a more kind of, of fiscal policies that mm. you can use there. Uh, so so you gain for it as a for a social economic perspective, but then you have to redistribute some some income uh, between the, the different sectors. That's true. Regarding the exports that you mentioned that that the Nordics could benefit from, this was also mentioned by Peter. But but you may have some, I should say, very preliminary numbers on what the annual benefits could be. Can you just go into those details? Yeah, some of our our, our details uh, numbers that we have so far is is, is in the range between five to ten uh, billion euros that can actually be gained by exporting electricity to the continent. So that's five to ten per year, per year. Yeah, yeah. So that's a significant number that that could be gained. It's a very big number, yeah. That should also attract the attention of of some policymakers, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Regarding the the signals that you apply, so flexibility should is dependent on some kind of signals to to be able to enable flexibility. I think you you use the term market coupling and and also markets. So so can you just briefly explain how those signals are transferred? We believe that that a market is is a good thing, uh, and we have shown it for many many years in the Nordic with our electricity market. We have a very well functioning uh, electricity market. The idea with a, with a market is that buyers and sellers meet. You get them together, and they actually say, "I want to sell this for this amount. I want to buy this for this amount, etc." So when they meet, they all, you also get the lowest cost, uh, and and you make sure that that the buyers and sellers are meeting. So in that way, a market, if it's working, it's very efficient to distribute the right uh, bits into it. So so what we want to do is to build on that, and as such, we we let the the market, especially the electricity market, be the international market, uh, or at least in the Nordic and the North European, and then you can have local market for district heating for. Uh, gas, transport, fuel, and so on. As long as they're coupled to the electricity market, then you can trade between different markets. So you can have district heating uh, area in Stockholm, for example, trading flexibility on the electricity side to um, someone who needs it in, in Denmark, for example, as long as, as you run it through the electricity market, mm. even though the different uh, sectors are not coupled uh, or physically connected uh, Within heat, but they are on electricity market. All right. So, so in summary, so the electricity system and the electricity market is what ties everything together and and provides the signal f- uh, for flexibility to to all the actors. Yes, and the electricity market would give the right signal in the price because if you have uh, excess of of supply, you are willing to sell it at a very low price to 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 someone who can use it. If you have uh, too little uh, supply of electricity, you are willing to to uh, buy it for a higher price, so the price will go up. So when you have high prices, it's normally when there's little wind in the system, for example. And if you have have uh, uh, low prices, it's, it's when you have a lot of wind. Mm. But then it, that's also what creates the business opportunities for the electrified sector. For example, a, a heat pump in uh, a district heating can buy electricity when you have low prices, and a combined heat and power plant can generate electricity uh, besides the, the heat generation when it's high prices. So, so, so you create some some business opportunities 
that react to the prices. Mm. That's why the prices are so important. But so you mentioned, for instance, district heating and, and other technologies. If, if we just go into uh, those technologies, I think uh, what what I can understand from the preliminary results is that we actually more or less have those technologies that are necessary to make the transition. But can you just explain what what direction do you see and what technologies might be in in the system and what which ones may not be in the system? So so as as we talked about before, the transition have to move fast, and the technologies are there uh, in in general. We have the wind, we have the the solar cells, we have all the other biomass technologies. So so those kind of technologies are there. We still have to develop some of the more specific technologies like digitization technologies, storage technology. And if we have to decarbonize the other sectors as well, we also need to to have carbon capture uh, in order to, to to take these sectors that cannot be decarbonized directly, but can be do, done so with, with uh, capturing the, the CO2. So one, one interesting finding, I think, is that, that batteries play hardly any role, as I understand, whereas that is a much hyped technology in in, uh, in other places and in other transition scenarios. Yeah. When we look at the Nordics, we have uh, a lot of resources from from hydropower and we have some very low-hanging fruit with, with coupling the district heating and, and electricity together with a large storage flexibility in the heat system. So when we run the, our models, batteries are not really deployed in, in the Nordic system. Mm. They are at, at the Central Europe system, but when you look at, at the Nordic system, it's not a technology that's going to have a big uh, deployment. Interesting. So, so uh, hot water is a nice storage, and cold water in refer- reservoirs is also a, a nice way of storage. Yeah, you can say that. Yeah. yeah. Then one of the other findings is that that uh, of course flexibility needs to be improved. Uh, but what about the demand side? To to what degree? Do, do these guys need to be integrated? The demand side in the future is going to play a, a major role in a creating a flexible system. But when we look at, at the, the, the demand side, you can say there's the residential demand and there's the, the more industrial demand. And some of the industrial demand is also when you look at the energy sectors. So it's the sector coupling that is really creating the largest flexibility option at the lowest cost. The reason why why they do it is, of course, they have a business case. If you run an electrolyzer in, in power to gas, or if you have a power to heat in, in district heating, then you are operating on the electricity prices. So you react to the prices. Uh, and this is your business case, and this is why they really are, are so good to play with, and it's really big magnitude of, of when you look at the amount of, of flexibility. Compared to households, there are many households, but it's very costly to have them being operated or you have to have incorporating some kind of control technologies and so on. So the low hanging fruit is, is, is in the sector coupling and have that demand side, that side of the demand side. Active. Sure, and then adding adding the the layer of difficulty of having uh, Mr. and Mrs. Nordics or Baltics uh, being flexible and, and maybe saving uh, very small amounts yeah. Of, yeah. of money on, on doing so. Yeah, at least for a system level. There can be in distributed level, there can be good reason for, for sure. having the households. But, but in all level, it's, it's the sector coupling that really matters.
Final question uh, regarding the, f- the preliminary Flex4S studies it goes regarding the the acceptance questions. How do you define, first of all, acceptance questions, and and how have you addressed them in in this study? So 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 just go one step back. Actually, what we actually find in in our study is that there's going to be a, a large deployment of wind, for example, in, in in the Nordic, and there might also be a, a large uh, extension of, of uh, transmission line, new transmission line being built. So so what we look at the potential for doing that, they are there, but the potential can be defined in different ways. What we have to take into account is, is there's the technical potential, then you have to take into account, would the public also accept it? Uh, it means that, is there any kind of public resistance in building a transmission line or in in uh, building wind turbines that, that is creating uh, some kind of disturbance in your view of your backyard or whatever. And if you take that into account, you limit your your potentials. And we have done that in our studies as well to see how much it, it influences. It's, it's kind of tricky because you there's a lot of debate about many studies uh, and taking into account different kind of accessibility. There's the local accessibility, there's the more public accessibility, uh, and then there's the market accessibility. It's different kind of how much can you actually uh, deploy of it, can you say, when you look at it? But I, I think that's an important message to get because this, so the Flex4S is, is not overly optimistic regarding the deployment of technologies uh, by, by actually trying to implement some kind of limitations on, on the deployment. So, so it's not a techno-optimistic research, but more with some kind of, of uh, grasp in reality. Exactly, exactly, yeah. A final question: Would you have any uh, recommendations to our listeners on <laughs> interesting studies or people or organizations that you will pass on? Of course, when when we work on this project, we would like to have people reading our reports. So, so of course, we would like to have people reading uh, the FlexRace um, findings, the the policy briefs, etc. What we have made. But I would also like to mention some of the other Nordic uh, flagship projects because some of the other sectors that is interesting to look at is the transport sector, for example. There's another Nordic uh, flagship project called SHIFT, which is very interesting to look at how to actually decarbonize the transport sector. Uh, and this is a major task that also have to be done uh, within the next year. So if you you Google that or, or look at that in, in, in the homepage, you can find many good papers there. And then as going back to one of the new technologies that we talked about, this is carbon capture. It's, it's a very interesting area. There's also another Nordic uh, research project on that one, which also find that you can actually go carbon negative by actually run it in, in on biomass uh, use and 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 capture the ca- uh, the carbon from there. So 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 I recommend uh, those because together they actually make a very good picture of of the present level of or stage of the research. Yeah, that sounds like you really get the whole picture of of uh, the total transition by by combining all those three. Thank you so much, Klaus. It's been a pleasure, and then uh, we we didn't uh, go so much over time this time, so uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> you short and concise. And uh, I hope our listeners have uh, appreciated this walkthrough. We'll uh, of course uh, link to those studies mentioned by Klaus or uh, those flagship projects. But thank you so much, Klaus, for taking thank you time. for letting me be here. <laughs>